And we're back in Dubai Stars. Today, my star doesn't need any introduction. It's the one and only Marisa Peer. Oh, you're so lovely. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. It's such a pleasure having you. Uh, first of all, I want to congratulate you to your move to Dubai. Yeah. That's so pleasant. I think now we have obtained a great asset in the city by having you being a resident. Tell me, uh, what did you do this move? What made me move here? Well, you know, I live in L.A. and I love L.A. I love the outdoor life. I love my friends. But um, it's far from London. So this is Dubai is nearer. But I also think Dubai is such an exciting city. And I've been putting my RTT method into schools and I've had so much interest here. And I think Dubai is a really forward city. I think it's way ahead of everything. I, th I think everything that's good is happening here. So it'd be exciting to be right in the middle of it because we really want to make therapy accessible to everybody. We want to make therapy easier, faster, start with young children. And it seemed a really good place to bring it. I mean, we were asked to come. We got offered a lot of opportunities here. So we just took a leap of faith and here we are. I always enjoy asking people why you moved to Dubai and they all have the same answer. Yeah. But mainly like <coughs> seeing the opportunity uh appreciating the lifestyle we have, yeah. the safety we have, everything is accessible. The safety is a huge thing too, you know, it's so nice. Just I never shut my doors, I go to bed every night with the doors open. I went up with lots of cats in my house in the morning. <laughs> but other than, it's so nice to not, I never lock the doors when I go out, never lock the can car door. Yeah, you can keep your car open. It's very different and I really, having lived in LA, I really appreciate that. Marisa, tell us, what's the definition of therapy? Um, therapy deals with the past, you know, coaching deals with the present and the future. Therapy deals with what I call unfinished business. So people will say things like, you know, I can't leave food on my plate. I've always been like that. But no baby has been able to leave food. We'll say, I can't, I can't cope with being the center of attention. But no baby says, don't look at me. So what we understand from that is that we aren't born with these issues. We tend to require them. I don't know why I do that. I have no idea. I guess I'm just messed up. But the mind knows exactly why you do what you do, why you do it, why you began to do what happened. It also knows how you can stop doing it. So therapy is going back into the past to have a look at what happened to you, you know, what went on, how did you get this issue? And then when, rather like a detective, you gather information and then like a dentist, you extract all that toxic stuff. Then like a coder, you code in something very different. So our therapists have three jobs, be a good detective, be an extractor, and then be a coder and code in better information. Did you ever have the case where you coded better information, but then the patient or the person had the retrace back to the old stuff? No, not really, because it's not quite as simple as that. It's quite a process. You know, you take the client back and you have a look at their past. So I'll give you an example. I worked with a man who weighed 400 pounds and he just couldn't stop eating. And he'd sit in the car eating while crying. And his children said to him, Daddy, you must never get out of the car when you come to get us from our friend's house. They must never know how big and fat you are. You must stay in the car. And of course, he got out of the car and they were so upset with him. And he said, even that didn't stop him. He still couldn't stop eating. And so when hypnosis, he went back to look at some scenes. It's never usually one scene. It's the scene... And how the scene impacted him. And in his case, he was a premature baby whose mother would cry hysterically every time she couldn't feed him enough. And then if he brought up the milk, she'd get more hysterical. So he had this 
very early memory that's repeated several times a day. Mum trying to feed the baby, baby brings up the milk, mum starts screaming, dad's pacing up and down going, he's going to have to go back to hospital, he's going to die. And this happened every day for about three months and then he began to gain weight and then they began to go, oh, look at him. Such a good feeder, what a good boy. And they say, you're such a good boy, you're getting bigger and fatter. So his baby mind picked up a belief, if I don't eat, it will kill me. And if I do eat, it really makes my parents happy. So that's the belief of a baby. But he still had that belief at 42 because the mind doesn't know how to forget beliefs. So imagine you're two and a dog jumps in your bed and barks at you or bites you. At 52, you're still terrified of a dog that big. Or if you're a baby and a cat scratches you, you could, waste, you could be six foot four and still be terrified of cats or little rodents because it's an imprint. You have a scared child an authority figure and an, and an imprint, and it goes in and it stays. And what therapy does, is goes, oh, look at that. Yes, of course, when you were three months, that made perfect sense. Anyone having that experience would have been like you, but you're not three months old now. And in fact, if you keep eating like this, that's going to kill you. You weigh 400 pounds, your kids are unhappy. So you look at the past, then you negotiate how the present's going to be different and then you have the client understand that that really isn't them. It's just a memory and they're a different person. And because you go through all of that and then you make a recording stating that and the client plays that every day. So they don't just go, oh, abracadabra, I'm someone else. It's, it's a process. It's a technique. And you have to wire it in and fire it in and code it in. And then the client goes, oh, well, this is me now. And so they very rarely ever go back. What are the most... Uh Severe cases you had? Um, agoraphobia, not being able to leave the house. I mean, my most severe things are... There was a case in London where a boat sank, and I worked with some people who survived that, who couldn't actually cross the bridge anymore, and there's a big River Thames going through London, and they couldn't cross water. So sometimes it's not severe things. It can be little things that affect someone's life, like somebody who can't go on holiday because they can't go on an aeroplane and their partner gets really fed up because they want to travel. But the severest things are people who are trapped in the house. They can't leave the house because they fear outside spaces. They have agoraphobia or claustrophobia. So they feel like if they go out, <clears throat> something bad is going to happen to them, and the home yeah. is the safety net where yeah, safety nothing is can home, happen. Yeah. yeah, I worked with somebody once. It was so amazing. His mother, when she was 16, was giving birth to him upstairs in the bathroom. No one knew she was pregnant, even her parents. And as he came out, she tried to push the baby back in. And he developed a fear. He couldn't go in lifts. He had a fear of small spaces because she wouldn't let him be born. So it's really interesting when you go back and look at that and see, wow, what that must have felt like to a child. It must have been so terrifying. Sure. And um, now I'm just wondering when you're telling me these stories, like how can someone know that he has issues? Well, you know, people, people don't always know you know a lot of people come in here's what happens people come in with one issue and it's not there's another issue they go the issue is i i can't stop eating cakes the real issue is i'm scared of having sex i've made myself really unattractive or you know i drink or i can't stop drinking but the real issue is i feel so unlovable that i drink to hide the real truth if i drink i can say i'm not married who'd marry me i'm just a drunk but the truth is i feel so unlovable I think nobody would marry me and so I call it the unspeakable truth better to say I'm a drunk than I'm unlovable better to say 
I have procrastination and I'm a failure. Better to say, oh, I self-sabotage and really I'm not very bright and I'm never going to amount to anything. So we have what I call the unspeakable truth we don't want to look at. So you create all these other problems. I'm an addict, um, I'm a self-sound, a procrastinator. And that's not true. The truth is you just don't think you're good enough. So you've created all these other issues. And the trick is to find the root issues and treat them. Because when people think they're not enough, which is very common, it's just not true. Take me back to how everything started. Very curious to know. For me or for, yeah, or for yeah, people? Yeah, for you. How did you get into all of this? Well, I was very lucky. I had a father who was a head teacher, and his absolute joy in life was working with children, and, and he believed in children very much. And he always say to me, you know, life's all about helping people. That's what life is. But he'd always pick up hitchhikers. I remember being a fun fair when I was a kid, and these boys being up, my father charged in and rescued them. He loved to rescue people, anyone that needed help. It gave him immense pleasure to help them. So I grew up seeing that. So I think it was kind of inevitable that I'd go into a similar business. And my father wanted me to be a teacher like him. And I thought I would be, but then it wasn't really for me. I wanted something more. And so then I went to work for Jane Fonda teaching aerobics. And that was, I was very perceptive. And I think I realized how many women had anorexia and bulimia. And so I thought, oh, I, I could learn therapy and cure all these people. So I did. And that was the beginning. And I really only ever planned to still work for Jane Fonda teaching aerobics as an aerobic boom in L.A. It was great fun. When was thought, this, in the 80s? Yeah, the late 80s. Oh, this is good. I'll teach aerobics all day and I'll see a few clients at night. But as it happened, I became so busy, I had to give up the aerobics altogether. And very quickly, I started to work on television programs like I worked on. I'm a celebrity, get me out of here and celebrity big brother and all kinds of shows. Super size, super skinny. And then I wrote, I wrote some books so I had a big audience. Then eventually I th people kept asking me, can you train me, teach me to do what you do? And I really couldn't imagine the workload in creating a course. But my lovely husband said, I'll do everything. My husband owned a comedy club called Jongly. He said, look, I, I know all about talent. I, I deal with talent. He said, you just turn up. And actually, true to, him, to his credit, he did the whole thing. He found a school. He found the people to run it. He got the timetable going. I just had to turn up and teach my technique. So it's really thanks to him that we got we created RTT together. And we didn't really ever expect that it would actually take the world by storm like it did, but it won lots of awards. And we would say, oh, this is amazing. Even doctors would say, gosh, this is really perceptive. You really got something here. We trained many psychiatrists. And, you know, this is the this is the missing bit. So... I think we were onto something, and it's just been amazing. It grew so big. Now, how many students you have? All More over than 15,000. It was 15,000 wow. last year, so must be coming up to 15,500 now. And how many, you can say, like... Uh, they have done an amazing job and they can carry the name of Marissa. Well, you know, our, our first school was in December 2015. We recently went back and 80% of those people in that class were still practicing RTT. It was eight years ago. Two of them had retired, but 80% was good. So, yeah, I would say a lot. Most, I mean, some of our students have done so well. They've written books. They've got their own television shows. They've got thriving businesses. I think for me, the best thing of all, without exception, was last year we started to put it into schools and we got an award for having this most innovative thing in schools. I'm actually having a meeting tomorrow with a school, a major school chain in Dubai. 
because it's a challenge. It's not RTT. It's, it's the thing that grows children's self-esteem. We, we imagine they have a cheerleader in their head that cheers for them. So instead of having a critic, they have a cheerleader. And every school we've put it in said, you know what's happening in this school is <clears throat> the children are doing so much better emotionally and academically and bullying has almost ceased to exist in this school. So tomorrow is going to be very exciting when I go to the school, this big school chain to see how quickly they want to take it. So that's been that's really probably cool. the best thing ever. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's all been good, but that's been my favorite. That's, that's really amazing. Uh, Tell us about your experience when it comes to the Middle East. Uh, I don't know if you have some patients in the Middle East. Oh, yeah, but, many. But regarding the male and especially the perspective in this uh, area of the world that men cannot go through therapy, they're not men enough. It makes and them weak, yeah. yeah. And uh, did, you, did you have cases like that? And I mean, like, that's, not un that's, that's probably more profound in the Middle East, but I still see that in Europe, in England and America, men who think they're weak. I've worked with many police officers. I won't go see the police therapist because it's weak. You know, um, about eight years ago, I started doing therapy on the screen, and many of my clients were well, I would never go to your clinic. I wouldn't be seen going to Harley Street because I would be weak, but I don't mind turning up on Zoom in your living room and my living room because it's it's easier. And so it's that thing about I don't want to ask for I don't want to admit there's something wrong. I'm seeing a therapist. There must be something wrong with you. Then if we look at great athletes, they all seem to see a therapist. If we look at many amazing, successful politicians, they often will say, yes, I have a therapist or a coach or a mentor. So I think it's changing, that it isn't a weakness. It's more like we, you want to be the best version of you that you can be. And many of us have issues like, Silly things like I'm always late or I have eczema or asthma or contact dermatitis or I don't sleep properly. I have a poor memory. I was working with a head of a major, major music company who said, I, I can't introduce acts. All I have to say is this band is called, I don't know, Lemon, Lemonade, and they come from Islington, but I, I can't do it. And he was so anxious about giving a presentation. He was head of a music company, so he should have been able to do that. And so sometimes people just need help. They just, you know, our greatest fear is supposed to be the fear of speaking in public. It's actually the fear of rejection, which is more obvious when you have to speak in public. So I've seen very successful businessmen, a woman who says, I can't present. I've got to speak at a funeral. I'd rather be in the coffin right now than give that speech. And so it's just about giving them that help to be the very best that they can be. I have something like this. You do? I mean, like, if you put me in a room with, like, five, ten people, I'll smash it. You know, I can right. dominate the room immediately. But if you tell me go up a stage and talk to thousands of people, mm -hmm. I think I'll freeze. Yeah, I because know why. It, well, it's, you do know why. It's the fear of being rejected. It, only 500 years ago, rejection would kill you. Imagine if you're a Bedouin, for instance, and you were cast out or... If you lived in America and you were cast out of the fort or cast out of your walled city, then you would die. You know, safety was very much a numbers game. You needed to belong to a big group. And so anything that could make you be rejected, talking to a stranger, asking for help, car breaking down in the middle of the night on your own, especially for a woman, these things are very scary. So we have this belief that rejection will kill us, not help by all the songs that go, I'll die if you leave me, I can't live without you. So they, they send us a message every day, 
rejection could kill you. Because once upon a time it could have done. But nowadays, of course, you can live in an apartment, get everything delivered by Instacart, have four cats, live until you're 110. But we, it, rejection doesn't kill us. But in our heart, it feels like it can because human beings are hardwired and super code the minute they're born to find connection and avoid rejection. And many of us do the opposite. We find rejection instead of connection. And so having to speak to strangers, they have the power to reject you, potentially. They can't really reject you. Only you can reject you, but it feels like they can. It's like going for an audition or speaking on stage at school. Anything that feels like it has the power to reject you is a bit scary because of our wiring. But then if you stop and go, you know what? They can't reject me. Only I can really reject me. It does help a lot. You should try it. I don't know, you got me excited. We should, <laughs> we should do something like that. Yeah, I spoke you. in front of 10,000 people. I didn't even know. I turned up at an event I was speaking. I thought it was going to be a few hundred, and it was like 10,000. But it was so peculiar because with a big crowd, you can't see them. Yeah, you only yeah, see yeah. the first three rows, Correct. so it feels like you're speaking to a small Correct. group. Like, that's what I had like, the first seconds, you know, when I turned and I saw there were like almost four or 5,000 people, and all of the lights were in my face. Yeah. And I was like, wow. And I turned my face and I kept talking to people as if no one existed. Yeah. And I did amazing. Yeah. But just the, the idea that I'm going to be seen by so many and, you know, you should mm. be really focused on what you're saying and you have to be diplomatic. Mm. And Eric Clapton said that. He said, when I go on stage, I sing to, I found, I sing to one person. I don't even see anyone else. And that's a very good thing. If, you have to, if you're a speaker and you feel a little bit overwhelmed just speak to one person yeah, yeah, yeah. In just the room. isolate the rest yeah. like they don't exist it's fine yeah after a while you don't notice it but it's tell me from your practices like let's get deep into it mm -hmm. what's the difference between normal therapy and the one that you do well normal therapy talk therapy is asking you a lot of questions why do you feel like that how long have you felt like that what happened when and a lot of us don't have the answers I don't know if I knew I wouldn't be here yeah and I never say to anybody why I, I never say why I say what happened to you so talk therapy is very long it's a bit old-fashioned now it's losing like they popularity get out from you the answer and by yeah. you saying what, what is yeah. bothering you it's, it's gonna cure you but there's something called webs is it webs or hebs i think it's hebs actually h-e-b-s that now has proved that going to therapy it's like it's like having a scab you know you, you people want to get better we live in a very very fast world. i think the days of going to therapy every week have really come and gone. It doesn't mean the therapists that do that are bad people. All therapists have a heart to help, and they're trained to do that. But the world is faster now. You know, people want to be fixed quickly. It's like I've always thought therapy was a strange thing because every healing modality from the doctor to the dentist to the chiropractor says, turn up with your pain, I'm going to fix it. If your tooth falls out or you break your arm or you hurt your back and you go to a dentist, or a chiropractor, they will fix you. They don't talk about it much. They just say, let me fix you. And I think when people come to therapy and go, I'm, I'm in pain. I'm in mental pain because I can't find love. I'm in emotional pain because I feel inadequate. I'm in physical pain because I get these stress headaches every day or I can't sleep at night. We should offer them the same thing. We should offer to fix them in the same session. They shouldn't have to come back and talk about it all the time. And I know therapies say that first you have to build up trust. But, you know, when I was in New York, I went into anaphylactic shock in the street. I didn't build up any trust with that doctor. An ambulance came. I was like, panicking. 
dying on the street. My mouth was like a puffer fish. They shoved an EpiPen in my leg and took me off. To, I didn't say to them, can, can I build up trust with you? I just said, save my life. And yeah. they did. Because that's the only way. To, sure. You don't have anyone no. else to have. Like, that's <laughs> no. it. I, I mean, as it happened, I was hypnotized. I was like crazy at that time because I, I knew what was happening. I, I knew I had four minutes. I couldn't actually speak. And I was telling my mind, stop making history. And all I had was my mind. And actually, just before the ambulance came, I passed out. And then I came to. When I came to, it was all subsiding. I knew I was going to be okay even before they shoved the EpiPen in my leg. Because when you have nothing else, you always have the power of your mind to talk yourself into or out of a situation. So you're telling me, like, if you can control your mind, you can control everything related to yeah. your body? Everything? Well, you know, pretty much. You know, we all told this belief about control, you know, control your weight, control your temper. But actually the only control you have is over your thinking. And when you can control your thoughts, you can control everything. Like you, we can't control the weather. We can't control our bodies or we'd never get sick or a headache. But you can always control your thoughts. And when you learn to control your thoughts and make your thoughts positive, it really does change your entire life. It's the really only control there is. Well, that I can vouch for. Yeah. You know, I just I think I made everything yeah. I, I have just because of controlling the mind and yeah. saying that I'm worth more and I'm going to make sure. it. And I kept saying it until it happened. People call it power of manifestation. I don't know. Universe, the manifestation whatever. is a power. You know, yeah. some people say, oh, I'm going to get sick now because it's hay fever season. I'm going to get ill now because I, I work, I've been up all night. I'm, I'm gonna, and they do. We, we manifest all the time. That's going to make me ill. That's going to give me a headache. That's going to drive me crazy. That's never going to work out. These are manifestations. There's so many funny scenarios where when we get the phone call and say, oh, I cannot go out. I'm feeling sick. Like yeah. After two hours, you fall sick. And I'm yeah. like, why did I even mention it? You've got to be very careful about saying this, I can't come, I've broken my leg or yeah. I'm ill. I, I never do that because if you say, I'm so sorry, I'm sick, you're probably going to make yourself sick. And that's not as odd as it sounds because your mind's job is to make your thoughts real. If you think of something embarrassing, you probably go bright red. If you think of something sad, your eyes will fill up with tears. Think of food and your tummy runs. For men, when you think about sex, your body reacts very physically indeed. And then, of course, you have placebo. What you think about a drug will have more effect on you than what's actually in the drug. So we know that every day we think a thought and the body makes it real. But what we don't know is that we should be thinking good thoughts all the time so our body can make it. Instead of saying, I always get colds in the winter, you should say, I've got fantastic immune system. Instead of saying, every time I get on an airplane, I get sick, you should be saying, I've got an amazing immune system. Speaking of airplane... How long does it take you to cure someone that has fear of flying? Oh, an hour, probably less. Yeah, because you'll never see a baby on a plane with a fear. When I took my little girl on a plane, she goes, she goes, Mommy, look at this. There's a slide, and you slide out of the plane into the sea. That looked so exciting to her. She really thought the plane landed, and we slid out. We were like in a funfair park because she didn't really know what that meant. And I took her on a plane after her, and she goes, Can we get off now? Are we there now? But babies don't know how to have fear. Children don't know how to think about a plane in any way. It's a form of transport. It's the pictures you make in your head 
and the words. So when you got on a plane, you start to think, I'm going to die. A lot of people before a flight, if they don't fly a lot, will do all their laundry and tidy up the house. They're actually planning to die. Nobody says, I'm going to the store. I just do all my laundry and tidy up the house. But they're thinking I might never come back. So I just sort everything out before I go. And so it's, it's this belief because the safe, the most dangerous part of flying is a taxi drive to the airport. That's much more dangerous than being on a plane. And yet nobody freaks out about getting in their car. They just have this thing called faith that they're going to be okay. So really what you do is transfer the faith that gets you into a car, get into a plane. It's a belief, you know, the way you feel about everything is down to the pictures you make in your head. And the words you say, so the pictures and words are, oh, I love flying. It's four hours to read a book, lie down, watch a movie, have some nice food. That's very different to this is a, it's a metal tube hurtling through the air and I could die. So if you don't like the way you feel, you've got to change the pictures and change the words. And that's actually incredibly easy because they're your words and your pictures and you get to change them. How long does it take a person... To you know these people that they feel they are unloved and unwanted by people, like how long would it take you for them to make them feel that they are worse that they just haven't found the right people to yeah. be in their life? Well, you know, I've worked with a lot of people who couldn't have babies, and then I've worked with other people who seem to have so many children and didn't even want It's because them. of fertility. Yeah, because of infertility or they didn't meet someone and they left it too late, and they would have been great parents. Other people who have really awful parents. And I've always tried to work out how could that be that this person would be an amazing parent they haven't got a child and this one is an awful parent. they got eight kids. And I always decided that really we don't come from our parents. We just come through them. The universe puts us here and it makes us unique and it puts us here for a reason and you're meant to be you and you're meant to be yourself. And so Even if you have the most awful parents in the whole world, you have to go, you know, somebody wanted me to be here and they wanted me to be here and it's not my mum and dad, but the universe put me here and it must have a reason for me to be here. So we're taking from them only the DNA. Yeah, we're taking only, the, and even if you've been adopted, again, many people say, you know, I was given away, but for many people, that giving away your child can be an act of tremendous love. It can then often sometimes the only thing you can give your child is a better opportunity than you could give them. So, you know, when you feel not, I mean, it's a terrible thing when you feel not wanted, not loved, not cared about, when your parents say you should have been a boy and you were the fifth girl and it was so disappointing. I cried for a year when I had you because I wanted a son. But then you have to think, yeah, but I was meant to be me and that's, that's your story. The problem with we, what we do is we make our parents' story our story. I should have been a girl, I should have been a boy. My, my mother's story was very strange indeed and... She always told me I was the wrong baby, but I figured, well, I, mustn't, I must be the right baby for me. So later I learned to reframe it, and I realized that you mustn't make someone else's story. It's like one of my clients said, his dad said, stand on the chair, jump, I'll catch you. And when he went to jump, he walked away. He said, never trust anyone, ever. <laughs> but that was his dad's story, don't <laughs> trust people. He said, he said, you can't even trust your own shadow. And they, but, but that's not your story, that's your parent's story. Men don't like successful women. You, when you're older, you've had it. Um, if you haven't been to college, you can never make money. This is someone else's story. What we do is we make other people's story our story. And our greatest pain is caused by the lies we tell ourselves. I was the wrong baby. I was supposed to be a sporty person, and I'm not. I was supposed to be a techie person, and I'm not. You know, you're supposed to be whatever you're meant to be, and 
Your job is not to be what your parents want you to be. Your job is to be what makes your heart sing. You can't live your life because your parents want you to be an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor. You know, you, again, you just come through them. And DNA is just a tiny percentage of you. You know, your life is like a massive clock, and your childhood is really the first eight minutes. You've got another 52 minutes to reinvent yourself all the time. What is the age that society starts getting into us? Like, um, I know, like, <coughs> seven, much eight, nine, ten, you're eleven, five. you're just like playing, mm. enjoying life, and then they start telling mm. you, like, this is allowed. I think this your is character, not. you know, your relationship with money is set before you're five. You learn half of what you learn in your whole life before you're five. So, so by the time you're seven or eight, it's all set, you know. The, the, the challenge is that for a kid, if their parents don't appear, if mummy doesn't appear to love you or daddy, a child can't really make sense. They go, well, I'm nice to my mum, but she shouts at me. I'm nice to my dad, but he never visits me. So a child does not stop loving their parents. They immediately stop loving themselves. And that can happen really early at three, at four, five, six, certainly long before you're 10. And once a child does that, so a child will think, you know, daddy's always at work. I guess he likes work more than me. Mommy's always out. She must prefer being out to being with me. Mommy's always crying. I guess I just don't make her happy enough because a child can't... Before five, you don't have any logic. You only have emotion. A child can't say, oh, my mum's crying because my dad's an alcoholic. My dad's working three jobs because he's going to night school to get qualifications. They, they can't do any of that. They can only think this is my fault. They don't love me because I'm not enough. And that's when a child buys into the not enoughness. And once they do that, they tend to carry that with them their entire life because they don't know how to undo it. So in answer to your question, really early, you know, I watched that movie called Blonde about Marilyn Monroe. It wasn't a great film, actually. But when you watched it with a therapist's hat on, you could really see that damage being done so early. Speaking of damage, what's the effect on social media and our lives nowadays? Well, you know, there's a great saying that comparison is a thief of joy. And social media has a lot of good things. Like, you know, my mom used to speak to her grandchildren on Zoom. That was a wonderful thing. You can research anything in five minutes, but it makes you compare yourself. Every day we get overexposed to fake images of perfection. You know, everyone's beautiful and perfect and amazing. And they're taking pictures of their kitchen and their dinner and their kids. And it's all perfect. We think, oh, I can't even compete with that. So the minute you get into comparing, you feel inadequate. You've ended a race. Enough. Sorry? You feel you're not good enough for whatever yeah, you do. not enough. I mean, the, you know, I believe that the common denominator of all of our issues is not feeling enough. I don't feel smart enough, interesting enough, worthy enough, attractive enough, intelligent enough. The social media amplifies that massively because everyone else looks like they're having a better life than you. And so it really makes you compare yourself. And, of course, they have these sites where girls can go on and say, can you rate me? And guys soon they go, well, you're a four. You're a five. And it makes people feel desperate. So it's a terrible thing. So all these bracelets say I'm enough. And it, if you're one of those people who at some stage have thought I'm not enough because your parents were out or busy or they preferred your brother or what, blah, 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 just start to say I'm enough. Write it on your mirrors, write it on your arm, stamp it on your underwear, wear these bracelets and just keep saying I am enough, I am enough. And if you want to quantify, go I'm enough because... 
I'm enough, because the truth is you always have been, and you always will be. And once you get that, not only do you know it, people around you start to notice it too. So it's it's a simple thing, but it's strength, and it's simplicity, and it's honesty, just saying I'm enough. You know, go to Marissa Peer, we have some good I'm enough.com, and learn to stop saying I'm not enough, which is the source of so many issues, and say I am. It really does make a difference. Yeah, you know, we have um, we have courses for self-development, like the I'm Enough movement. And then you can train to be an RTT therapist. Any background in therapy is not required. So we have courses that range from $4,000 to $14,000 to train you to be a therapist so that you can work with people. I think it's the best job in the world. I love it. But some of our courses are just for you. But yeah, you don't have to have a background in therapy to train with us. So we're going to put all of the credentials yeah, in this video you. for people to check it out thank and you. get more information about it. Again, I cannot get enough from you. I know that you have a webinar, so well, we can we're going to kill more. this episode, but we're going to keep this as an episode one. Yeah. And hopefully we can do another one. Yeah, in we the could do one week. on money blocks, why people have those. Or, you know, people don't yeah. understand that. If you've never had money and it's so unfamiliar, like a lot of people who win the lottery, 70% of people who win the lottery are bankrupt in three 95%. years. 95%. <laughs> Why is that? Because your mind only likes what it knows. The, the most vexing thing about the mind is it loves what is familiar and what it already knows, and it wants to go back to what's familiar while running away from what isn't familiar. So even if love isn't familiar, many people reject it. They go, oh, I feel vulnerable, I don't like it. I'm going to go back to what I know. I'm going to go back to people who treat me badly because it's familiar. And many people reject wealth, as weird as that sounds, because it isn't familiar. Some people reject health. You know, there are people who are hypochondriacs. They like being ill. As a kid, if you don't feel loved, being sick is the next best thing. They don't love me, but they worry about me. They're always buying me gluten-free flour and putting all this cream on me. So you'll even reject being healthy if to it's unfamiliar. Sorry? Someone gets uh, like uh, sick to get more oh, attention. Yeah. Get more it's the love. commonest way. Of, if you don't think you belong to a group, there's only four things to do. The first is to get sick. For a child, that's the next best thing to being loved. You get lots of attention when you're sick. The second way to find a sense of belonging is to be brilliant at something, brilliant at sport or brilliant at math, because, of course, in a tribe, the best hunter, they belong. They were revered and looked up to. The third way is to be the carer, the person who looks after everyone else. The fourth way is to be the rebel, the really difficult kid who demands attention. So, you know, we play the only part we've ever known, and then we make it our own, the sick one, the brilliant one, the difficult one, the one who's giving what they haven't got, which Can is love and caring. Can someone have it all? Sorry? Can someone have oh, yeah. all of the above that you just mentioned? Two, three, four. And they can change sometimes. You know, I worked with this guy years ago. and He said to me, I met him on the beach, and he said, I'm a terrible addict, and I've been into rehab so many times, and I just can't not be an addict. No matter what happens, I always go back to it. I said, tell me about your life. And he said, well, I'm an Iranian. My parents are Iranian doctors, and I have an older brother and two twin brothers. I said, oh, well, that's it. I can tell you straight away what happened to you. Your parents are the carers. You know, they're both doctors and brilliant. And for an Iranian family, the firstborn son, your brother will never lose that role. And then there was you were the little baby son. And then two baby brothers came along, and they were premature and needed a lot of attention. So they were the sick ones. Your parents were the brilliant ones. Your brother um, was a brilliant And you had no other role except the difficult one because every role was taken. Brilliant, carer, sick, difficult. So the 
premature babies were sick, or a lot of attention. Parents were brilliant doctors and carers. Brother was brilliant, and he didn't have any other role. And he said, when I pointed that out, he said, that changed his whole life. He wrote to me, he said, I've never had a drink since. That just, that everything clicked into place when I understood. I had kind of had this role forced on me, and I didn't realize that I could say, I need to play there. I don't live with my parents or the twin brothers or not premature babies or the older brother. I'm free now, but often we have an identity and we don't understand that we can just reinvent ourselves anytime we like. That's amazing. I want to have you more to speak about money. I want to speak about how the body can cure itself oh, yeah. from multiple stuff. So because, many like, things. You told me some stuff, which is I, I'm really still shocked, like what the body can do. Oh, the body can do the anything. Mind. The body can create symptoms of every illness in the world, but if it created, it can cure it. You know, I worked with someone who's, grandfather used to touch her and she told her mother and she said don't be silly it's not true and then she got contact dermatitis only on her thighs if you touched her thighs the skin would just fall off and the grandfather was so disgusted he never touched her again I said god that's a genius what a genius your body is to come up with it just there it was your body everything you get when you get an illness it's like all the three p's are trying to protect you or punish you or prioritize you say so many times we get fat to stop ourselves being molested or being the center of attention or we get headaches so we can't fail at school or we get um, anxiety so we can't go to school and fail the exams. That's a protection. Sometimes we give ourselves things to punish ourselves because when we were a kid we stole money from our mum's purse and we think we're so bad. But the prioritizing is we get lots of attention too. We have all these illnesses. And so if, if you have anything, look at the three pieces to protect you, punish you, prioritize you, maybe a bit of all of them. But you have great power to let that go. So we'll talk about that next time. Yeah, definitely. Like we have so much to talk about. Thanks a lot for, for coming on the show. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. We didn't even talk about your book, so we'll do that next time too. We do it with that. And the second book as well is yeah, on I'd the love way. To hear We're going to go into books. deep into the stuff. Thanks a lot for coming you're again. You're so welcome. Guys, I hope you'll enjoy it. As Marisa promised us, next week we're going to have the part two where we're going to be going deep into multiple subjects. And if you have any questions, you want us to share it on the show, please feel free to comment it in the section below. Thanks a lot and see you on the next one.